jugglers, specialists, predatory survivors, spinning heaven, fight from his lips, burn a slave driver. Welcome, listeners, to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4.6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4.7 states wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom with all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Catch the live stream there also. You can go to abb2me.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com. They stream from Ghana and catch the live stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. In that tune-in search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream your program live, even into your car if you had a Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening Radio Program. There you'll always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program. The fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here in the city of Philadelphia, PA, on this uh, cold Sunday evening. And we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, uh, the first one of this uh, calendar year, uh, 1-8-2023. Our guest this evening, activist, organizer, and vice chair of the California Reparations Task Force, Dr. Amos C. Brown is with us in conversation this evening. Uh, glad to have Reverend Brown back with us to give us some updates on the progress of our folks out there in California fighting for reparations for our ancestors. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word 
from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. 
the relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 7-12 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, <coughs> excuse me, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellen. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, and yes, it is chilly outside in Philly. Um, but otherwise, everything looks good, and I'm glad that uh, we are we are going to be in conversation with, um, you know, Reverend Brown, you know, Dr. Amos C. Brown, um, you know, because I think it's um, helpful as we move into 2023 of um, how the, the repair process. We've heard um, other cities and and, and places are, are putting in there, putting together their reparations commission. So, and that California's commission is seen to be the template um, to at least look at as we move towards um, this the repair that is so desperately needed in this um, moment in time. Yeah, and I'm glad we're kind of starting out the year, uh, calendar year, our first program with uh, with this conversation, Richard. Uh, we're going to have uh, subsequent conversations in this vein uh, within the next couple of weeks and heading into February. But uh, I'm glad that we're uh, revisiting this, and we're probably going to revisit it two or three more times within the next uh, coming months uh, with our guest this evening, activist, organizer, and vice chair of the California Reparations Task Force. Dr. Amos Brown is with us. Reverend Brown, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you, and you. <laughs> I'm, it's and Brother I'm, Richard. Yeah, I'm doing fine, sir. I'm glad to have you back with us, sir. Uh, My pleasure. Reverend Brown, before we kind of talk about the progress of uh, our brothers and sisters out there on the commission, yourself included, um, let's talk about what has happened in the past, I guess, week or two that's been plastered all over the news and published reports about what's happening with the the uh, the beachfront land that was taken from some of our ancestors around the turn of the century, uh, 1900, and uh, they returned it to the family of uh, the Bruce Beach property. And we see now that the family is, is uh, selling it back to the state of California and I guess Los Angeles County for $20 million dollars. Um, give us your perspectives before we kind of move forward with our conversation on this, uh, Reverend Brown, because I, 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 I got some things I, I, my thoughts, but you're there and you've been fighting to get these things in the forefront, you and the other commission members. And when you see this happen, uh, that, uh, a, a property that was stolen from our people were returned to the descendants of those families or that family. And then you see what they did. Uh, Give me your thoughts, uh, Reverend Brown. That's the most unfortunate expression of 
giving up one's birthright. Even though they had the freedom to do such. But anyone who has the spirit, the spirit of self-determination as black people, the spirit of Mbutu, putting weakness in our reality, would not be prone to do what was done. That property was given back to that Bruce family. And it looks like to me that considering that it was a group effort of black folk and our friends who fought for the concept of reparations, that courtesy would have caused them to at least ask us for our opinions. So personally, and I'm not speaking for the task force, but personally, I am a bit unsettled and greatly disappointed to have heard of this. And if there were some outstanding factors that warranted this move, we are sensible people. We would have been open to hearing them. But it is what it is. And this is not the only property that was really ours that was taken from us by the oppressors. The other one is down there at Allensworth, near Bakersfield, where Kevin McCarthy is from. Mm -mm. You know, back in 1908, the same year that that terrible race riot was in Springfield, Illinois, that brought into the response of Mary White Overington, W.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, 1908, that year in Springfield. Our homes were destroyed. Persons were killed. But Mary White Overington, I repeat, and Walling, who was the publisher of the independent paper, a magazine, that periodical, they said, we must do something to come to the aid of African Americans, of the Negro. And that year, also down in the Bakersfield area, a black Baptist preacher, Alan Allensworth, who had the distinction of pastoring the great Union Baptist Church of Cincinnati, Ohio, came out here and he had the vision of replicating Tuskegee down there so that black people would have an enterprise of education, cultural enrichment, economic empowerment, and a safe place 
where black folks will be able to build community and rear our children who will be scholars and people of great resource and integrity. But what happened? The white folks paused in the water of that town and redirected the railroad tracks so that the town would die. And now Allensworth's vision has been turned into the nightmare of just being a park and two or three of the original buildings that were there. So when our people have gone through all of these great challenges and we're able to hold on to something in spite of the oppression, the trickery, and the evil of the system, we ought to have pit bulldog determination to hold on and not let go of our right to property. Listen, in 1900, African-Americans owned oh, about 17 million acres of land in this country. But today, maybe we have 2 million. We need to stop letting people trick us out of our birthright for a mess of pottage. You can put no you can put no price tag to what has been done to us psychologically, mentally, academically, and physiologically. But at least when there is a mechanism, a platform, a program to make amends and to pay back for the harms that were done, we ought to embrace it, and push that mechanism, that platform, that program. And that's what our reparation task force is about here in the state of California. We're not about putting money into individual persons' pockets, though some may have that view or that position, which they're entitled to. But we're about, from my vantage point, the common good, what will benefit the people in areas of education, health, economic empowerment, prison reform, criminal justice, housing. Those are the major areas that are of deep concern to me that will empower us, help us to be self-sustaining. So that's my little bit regarding that matter. If if I may, Elliot, um, just to follow up, follow up, um, Reverend Brown, because um, in conversation with uh, others, the question came up about real estate taxes for that land. And, and and as you mentioned, a lot of besides actually being um, terrorized off a of land, um, you know, taxes, um, you know, became become the issue um, in, in the recommendations based off of the task force. Is there 
as a part of remedy, is there a possibility? Could there be? I mean, and I'm, I'm I didn't see it in the executive summary, so I'm not saying that you y'all have raised that. But should is that something that we should learn out of this? If that was a consideration that that family um, had to deal with, could they pay the taxes on the land that they now acquired? Is that something we should consider? Well, even of that, if the body, if the people had been consulted, mm-hmm. something could have been worked out. White folks have owned acres and acres of real estate in this country. And that real estate has been kept to the hands of families. So nothing is impossible. When we are enlightened, engaged with each other, have empathy for each other, and are excellent in our thinking mm-hmm. so that we would think outside of the box. That's it. Something could have made it. Uh, maybe worked out of a of a conglomerate, of a cooperative uh, plan for black people who have money. You got all of these um, athletes and uh, black folks who got money. They have it. They have it. But we have not put it together. But in unity, there's power. Thank you for that. But back to your question about the task force considering that matter of the tax relief, that has been mentioned. That has been mentioned. And for what has been taken away from us? Something should have been considered of reducing the taxes or have no taxes at all. Yes. For Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays said, he or she who's behind in the race of life will stay behind. Or it better run faster in order to catch up. And... This could have been a means for us to catch up economically and in terms of having ownership of real estate, a place, a place. This is one thing about the sons and daughters of Israel. They have, like a pit bulldog, held on to the notion and the idea that we deserve a place, the promised land, a place after we've been persecuted all around the world, where we could go back and claim it as our homeland. And when you tell a people that they don't have a place, it is, according to the psychologists and sociologists, very much unhealthy, inhumane, and it ruins, it destroys the psyche and the spirit of a people. We were called 
some, the invisible people. Aristotle said during the 4th century B.C. in his politics that we were inferior because of the color of our skin. And the only way we could become somebody, we have to go up to Europe and become lighter. He also said that we would never be capable of self-determination, that we would always have to have a white man, a white woman over us. So that violence to our humanity must be white from the face of the earth or else we will never, never have the confidence and show the industry that we have to fulfill the words of the great sister who sang, she sang so well. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child. It's got its own. Oh, hey, Elliot, I want to I come back to Dr. Brown, uh, Reverend Brown, about uh, the psychological aspect later. But I, 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 I but thank you, um, Reverend Brown, for your response. Yeah, Reverend Brown, the um, the progress of the town hall meetings to go straight to our brothers and sisters in California to uh, to get their feedback, uh, to let them know the progress of what's going on. Um, Talk about the town hall meetings uh, and and uh, some of the feedback of the people. What have they been saying? Uh, 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 have they been a great resource? And, and I noted that there's a commission there. Uh, 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 one of the past guests that was on our program several times is a commission member out there, uh, Dr. Darity, William Darity, and his wife. Um, so I know the commission is working. Uh, the people that uh, the commission hired to kind of put some things together, uh, as far as projections and things like that, but the the people, what have they been saying in reference to uh, uh, what's well, going on? Var- there have been various opinions. You always get diff- different opinions, but there's one thing we must all understand. There's a difference between an opinion and a fact. Okay. Difference. Vast difference. And in my estimation, we must put our best sink into the task and look at what is doable, doable, morally, economically, and politically. And the words of my friend, Willie Lewis Brown, Jr., if you're going to work this political process and be successful, you had better first know how to count, to count, to count. Some individuals said, well, just give me some money and put it in my pockets. Others said, no, let's consider it. Well-designed, well-honed programs in areas of education, health, reviving our, our cultural enclaves, our watering holes, and dealing with this criminal justice system 
that has been unjust and caused us to have this mass incarceration of black people. Those are some of the beginning areas that one might focus on. And after our report is presented in July, we would work of all hands on deck to lobby that state assembly and the Senate and make it difficult for Governor Newsom not to sign into law what we will have pushed to make a reality. You know, um, dealing with the last statement you just made, I was looking at a published report of uh, a sister Camila Moore, who is the chair of the uh, California Reparations Task Force, and she was on a uh, radio program and talked about, and and and, uh, and I see that she was operating in the spirit of our ancestors when she talked about, uh, according to this first report, uh, that um, black homeless, if it's if it's a monetary amount to be issued that uh, black homeless should receive the most. Um, if that's not in the spirit of our ancestors, I don't know what is. Looking out for our people that have the less or the least to... Uh, to well, to, in, in that area, I understand what our chair was getting at, but in that area, it goes again to programs. Okay. But you have, unfortunately, many of the persons who are without house are persons who are mentally ill. Many of the persons who are without house are homeless are those persons who, out of the anguish and agony of their being underserved, resorted to drugs to cope with their pain, with the hell and the horror that they experience. They need treatment. You see, it takes more, as the song says in Mississippi, than a house and a nail to make a house a home. And what persons who are greatly uh, into this category of being without house are going to be able to get on their way. They need tender, loving care and for somebody to connect with them and empower them. And that's the reason why Ronald Reagan never should have closed down these institutions. Yes, there were some that needed to be held accountable because of they are not running the right way those programs, but you don't throw out the baby with the backwash. And these counties, these counties and cities did not show the responsibility that was supposed to have been done of providing mental health services and drug treatment programs 
not for black folks. But right now we have that other drug that has come out, fentanyl. What is happening? You see white folks all over the tube, in the news, talking about showing mercy, and they ought to. We got to show concern for every human being. They are precious. But they're talking about their children getting help, mm-hmm. getting care. But what did they do with us? They threw us into the jails and the prisons. And almost got us locked up and threw the key away. So that's why we got to be smart. Wise as serpents, as the good book says, and harmless as a dove, and practical, and come up with measures that the political process will not be able to wiggle out of. We got to quantify this remedy. We got to make it practical. And at the end of the day, we got to make sure that the measures will make things better than they were. But we cannot put any price tag on the suffering we've gone through, the hardship and the hell and horrors. Anyone who goes gone to West Africa, as I've gone on several occasions, and you see Cape Coast Castle, that castle, and of all things, they had the gold put an Anglican church up on the top level of that castle. But down below there were the dungeons where our ancestors were stacked in those spaces like sardines in cans for four months. And they could not even answer nature's call to go out and get relief. They stood. They slept in their own their own excrements. That is inhumane. For four months. And anyone who dared to resist even the oppressors viewing through a trap door up over would see who got out of line. And they will be put in the lowest dungeon where their spirits would be broken and they would die. And to add insult to injury, for another three to four months across that Atlantic passage, they were in the bottom of slave ships. So you see, there is no doubt that can be placed on that kind of horror that was sustained for 400 years in that Atlantic slave trade. But in this nation, for 244 years, we were enslaved and made to work for the comfort of white folks. You know, Elliot, if I can raise another point, and I mm-hmm. wanted to contextualize it um, 
if it's okay with you, um, Elliot and, and Reverend Brown, uh, based off of what you said, uh, Reverend Brown, in relationship to Reagan and the um, the um, health crisis, the, based off of the drugs and and what was done um, compared to the institutions that were, you know, the funds that were pulled from them that could have been helped um, for Black people specifically compared to, you know, now with the fentanyl and we see the uh, white support. And we do see white support um, coming from the Congress. And I don't know if in the state of California, are they providing, you can, it seems like they're, they're speaking for support there. I want to. Yes, they're jumping, they're jumping on board. Oh yes, they're jumping on board. (laughs) I want to, I want to contextualize this from a ninth, the, uh, we charge genocide. Um, And maybe just raise it as a rhetorical question. But to, to based off of what you said, uh, as and what was ha- happening to Black folks in California specifically um, around that, um, in the introduction it says, out of in you in humane Black ghettos of American cities. This is 1951. Out of the cotton plantations of the South comes this record of mass slaying on the basis of race, of lies deliberately wrapped and distorted by the willful creation of conditions making for premature death, poverty, and disease. It is a record that calls aloud for condemnation for an end to these terrible injustices that constitute a daily and uh, ever-increasing violation of the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. It is sometimes incorrectly thought that genocide means the complete and definitive destruction of a race or people. The Genocide Convention, however, adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations on December 9, 1948, defines genocide as any killings on the basis of race, or it is specific words as killing members of a group, any intended to destroy in whole or in part a national, racial, ethnic, or religious group in genocide, according to the convention. Thus, the convention state causing seriously, bodily, or mentally harm to a members of the group is genocide as well, a, as killing members of the group. I raised those two paragraphs because to, to this, and you can address it and you don't necessarily have to, for this rhetorical question as it relates to what you specifically gave and California and what is done as I look over the interim report. Could we say that California was engaged in a a genocidal act as it relates to black folks in California? Yes, it was death in slow motion. And for far too many of our people in recent times and today who are dead before the deadline. Our life expectancy is 67 years on average than that of the majority culture. In our communities, practically every other week, some African-American young person is dying of violent crime, of physical violence from guns, from guns. 
That is a form of genocide. And it does wipe out a people. When you look at San Francisco and consider that in the 70s, we were about 16% of this population. But now, because of that so-called program of urban renewal, we are down to about 3.9 to 4%. 3.9 to 4%, gentlemen. And we are possibly the only city, major city of this nation, that has per capita lost more black folk. That's a crime. That's inhumane. That is an insult to our humanity. But it happens, and not just in San Francisco. Same thing goes in Washington, D.C., there around 14th Street, you know, mm -hmm. those communities where we used to be thriving there. Oh, my God. And even South Philadelphia. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right there. I know about it. I'm very much familiar with it. I went to graduate school at Crozer. My first pastor was out there at at St. Paul's Baptist Church in Westchester. And I remember when First Union Union, excuse me, Union Baptist Church was thriving. The the home church of Marion Anderson. I remember when First African Baptist Church thriving. I remember the days of the great legacy of Charles Albert Tinley, Tinley Temple, in a place where people gathered for concerts. And even when the NACP met in Philadelphia in 1961, I was there. And the one place that was big enough for us to hold the nightly mass meetings of the convention was Tinley Temple United Methodist Church. That great church that seats about 3,500. Yep. But now, mm -hmm. you throw a rock in there on Sunday morning, we'll hardly hit anybody. That's sad. That's sad. But our community was destroyed. And Du Bois talks about this in his definitive sociological work on the Philadelphia Negro. So you see, the record is on high. The evidence is there that we were treated wrongly because of the color of our skin. The same thing goes for Sweet Auburn Avenue over there in Atlanta, Georgia the hometown of my teacher and friend, Dr. Martin Luther King. Same thing has happened. I know communities have changed, but something is rotten in Denmark when it appears that it's invariably us yep. who are pushed out. Yep. We are pushed out. And we don't hold on our, to our own from one generation to the next. That's, that, that's, that's the reality. That is the picture. That is what old Kevin McCarthy didn't have the insight 
the humanity of the love to acknowledge, even in his speech, when he started talking about that boat that Washington was in on the Delaware and tried to redact what happened and use his, it wasn't sanctified imagination, it was opportunistic imagination to try to give a weak statement of inclusivity, saying that on that ship there was a Native American and, 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 and there was a black person on that ship, on that boat, rather. I long for the day that I'll be able to see him and remind him that he was born down there in Bakersfield, right near where Allensworth was located. But the white folks down there in 1908 said black folks can't be in the ship, uh, in the boat of opportunity, of education, and economic development when they destroyed that town. Reverend Brown, let me let me ask you uh, uh, two questions. One, could you uh, the question that Richard raised? I, I just want to kind of ask another question behind that, because we see here in Philadelphia, as you mentioned, gentrification going on at a rapid pace, and blacks are leaving the city. Uh, in California, because um, and 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 you and and you and the commission did the historical account. A lot of blacks came from Texas, uh, different southern areas, and came to California uh, during the migration. Where are they going to when they're leaving Oakland, when they're leaving Los Angeles? I'm, I'm quite sure they're not going to other California areas, are they? Where, where are a lot of our people going? Do you know? Well, they've been, they've, they've, they've been pushed out to places like Fairfield, Vallejo, Sacramento, Pittsburgh, uh, and some are going back south. Okay. But you see, this is not the first time when we were not welcomed. From the very beginning of this state's being admitted into statehood, they didn't welcome us here. Why? Because the first governor of the state, who was an arch racist from Nashville, Tennessee, Peter Burnett, in 1843, led a wagon train up to the Oregon Territory. And according to the historical record, one of the stipulations of that wagon train was that no black or mulatto be permitted to be a part of the wagon train. And if they were, they would have to be enslaved persons. And when Peter Burnett got up to the Oregon Territory and he established that first little hamlet or town there, his first official act of business was not how a log cabin should be built, a road should be built, but the first measure was a law that became known as that infamous Peter Burnett flogging law. 
and a state that any black person or mulatto who was caught in this town would be beaten every six months. Beaten every six months, I tell you, until he left town. And that law stayed on the books of that territory and later the, place, the same place that became a state until 1926. 1926, gentlemen. And when gold was struck down here in California in 1848, Peter Burnett led another wagon train. Came down to California. And settled up there around Sutter's Field. There in the Sacramento area. Got involved in politics and emerged to become the first governor of this state. First governor. And when he became governor, what did he do? Got busy trying to get through the assembly a law that would forbid African-Americans settling in the state of California. Thank God he was not successful in getting that through. But he did not stop his racist practices. But even after he left office in disgrace because some debts caught up with him from the Midwest, he was able to politic enough to get on the state Supreme Court. And in 1857, when that Dred Scott case of the West came up involving a young brother from my native state of Mississippi who was 19 years old, and he was brought here as an enslaved person by Charles Stovall. This young man named Arce Lee was kidnapped by Stovall to take him back to Mississippi to be an enslaved person, even though California was a free state in 1850 when it ended the Union. And what long short of it is, friends, is that when that case got to the Supreme Court of California, who voted against R.C. Lee being set free. It was Peter Burnett and one of the justice, jurors. So you see, it's always been in the DNA of the state from the very beginning and through the body politic to be against black people. But even though R.C. Lee was set free, and I did learn later through research that he joined that group of blacks who fled, who left California and San Francisco in 1858. On April the 13th, why did they leave? Blacks could not serve on juries. They weren't able to get housing. There was no schooling for them. And it was hell for black people.
I thank God that Governor Douglas from British Columbia heard about the plight of blacks here. And word was sent to the blacks in this community as they gathered over at First AME Zion Church, the denominational body of the great Frederick Douglass, the AME Zion Church. They met in that church on April the 13th, I repeat, 1850. And that was a man named Negley, an Irishman who heard about the plight of blacks. And he said to them, if they won't accept you in San Francisco and in California, come on, get aboard of my ship. Let's go up to British Columbia. Get on the Commodore. Come on, go with me. And friends, my wife and I have been up there, and we have seen a large plaque in the cemetery on Victoria Island dedicated to the blacks who had to leave California because of the unjust, inhumane treatment that they received in the state and in San Francisco. So I cite all this history to say, the record is on high. You can't deny it. You can't redact it. You can't wipe it out. You can't besmear it with this nonsense about critical race theory that some of these people, including, including Mr. McCarthy. Yes, I call his name. But he's in that clique. And he's anti-black. And they made tricks with the devil the other night. Playing tricks. Not concerned about the common good of all, but only about the privilege of white folks. And that 2% that does not fairly and justly share with the underserved of our community some of their wealth. In this city, we get less than 3% of the philanthropic money Philanthropy does not come our way for our institutions, our organizations, our communities. Those are facts. Facts. They make a case for a form of reparations for blacks in this state and this city. Reverend Brown, the, um, the the report that the commission put out, the definitive report, which is a history book in itself, um, has there been, I'm just curious because, you know, when we had you on our program and you shared it with us, uh, myself and, and Brother Richard sent it out to uh, different professors and all that we knew that had been on this program and other authors that had written and sent it out to share it with their classes to have discussions on it. Um, how's the response been from the people there? Um, maybe in the classrooms or even in the college campuses, have they uh, tapped into y'all to get the report, to share it with others 
Because I, I think the oh, oh yes, oh yes, that been several yes. But more importantly, go ahead. I made a motion. I made a motion at our meeting uh, down in Los Angeles. Every member of the assembly and the senate would get immediately then a copy of their report, so that they would not have the excuse to say. We haven't read it. We haven't digested it. And that was a motion made by me, second by one of the other members of the task force. Because we want nobody to, to plead ignorance. They need to read that report. And uh, there should be summary reports given around the state as we move forward. The date of finalizing our efforts. And that, uh, I th- go ahead, Richard. No, I, I was, when you, when you brought that question up, the, the thought came to me and it may be inappropriate. Um, and I understand the, um, the, to make sure that the state uh, representatives in California um, are, are aware of the findings from the report. I'm wondering how is the well? How is the, <clears throat> the let's say the organization the NAACP is utilizing, if at all, the report that's coming out of the commission? Um, I took Elliot's question is how is the report uh, filtering as a informational to the pop, black populace in California since it's um, drafting? Well, what but further since. I, I would have <laughs> making the state's best statement that black folks know we've been in pain. So why tell them that they're sick? They know it for the most part. The report is for those people who can do something about it. What good is it? What good is it to have a record from the doctor and you can't do nothing about it in terms of getting healing? The legislative persons, the moral agents of our faith communities must be the doctors. Because at the end of the day, it still is a matter of a process established by the body politic to get this thing into law. We need to, we, we, listen, drink water, the great British cleric said, Lord, knowledge we ask not for, knowledge thou hast lent. But above the intent, give us the will, the will, the will. And we got to change the will and the attitudes of the persons who make decisions. And how do we do that? Well, the one constitutional right that we have is through voting. But in the state of California alone, there are about 
200,000 plus black people who are eligible to vote, who are not registered to vote. Yes, we get allies from our other friends from the Jewish community. And thank God that in San Francisco, Temple Emmanuel Congregation's leadership and the black Jewish uh, coalition, they all support reparations. And we've gotten support from other community groups also in the Asian community. But the main thing now after we will have done this work for the good of the people, the people, the people, we have got to get to work and do what Martin Luther King Jr. did when he even had to twist the political arm of Lyndon Bain Johnson to get the Voting Rights Bill of 1965. And how did he get that bill passed? by moral suasion, by nonviolent demonstrations, and by making sure that black folks became an arsenal of votes that would have been a threat to those who sit in legislative bodies and make decisions that determine our destiny. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. Uh, you can get involved, too, while we have Reverend Brown still with us to ask any questions uh, dealing with uh, the Reparations Commission and what's going on out there in California, because it can be a template to what you're doing in your localities. Uh, and you can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Richard on time for an awakening media part of the black talk radio network for podcasting or live program scheduling hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com all insurance incorporated an african-american owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years located at 231 southeastern road in glenside pa with other offices in germantown and west philadelphia call now for commercial insurance quotes homeowners insurance quotes automobile insurance quotes notary and tax services representing over 15 major a-rated insurance companies offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote call this number 21 
215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family to join your interconnected commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of their time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Raft Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson, 
Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian emancipation proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian civil rights bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Let anybody take your manhood. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.13 here in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation activist, organizer, and vice chair of the California Reparations Task Force, Reverend Dr. Amos C. Brown. And you can join the conversation with any question, comment that you have by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Reverend Brown, a question for you, a couple of questions. Um, You talked earlier in conversation about some of our folks in California that have a little more means than others. And it's a lot of them there because when you uh, reach a certain wealth status, uh, a lot of blacks kind of follow uh, their uh, uh, white counterparts out there and they move to California. Um, Has there been any, hold on a second, I'm sorry. Has there been any, any interaction with the task force by people that have means, and I'm talking about whether you're talking about the uh, in the, uh, uh, the athletic arena, the uh, uh, stage and screen, uh, music. Has there been any interaction by our brothers and sisters that have means with the California Reparations Committee as far as things that they can do to help? And I, I'll use an example. Uh, you talked about the the era of the civil rights struggle and you had Dr. King and, and uh, 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 others out there, including Malcolm, Mega Evers, others that were involved in that whole movement. But you had people that had a little means at that time that had became popular and, and movie stars. Uh, Ossie Davis. Like, is Harry, what, like Harry Belafonte. Yes. Ossie Davis, Ruby D, Harry Belafonte, Bill yeah. Cosby. Uh, 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 Sidney Poitier that 
didn't directly get involved, but they gave money behind the scenes to help what was going on. See, it's ways you, you don't necessarily have to jump in the street with a bullhorn. It's ways that our people can get involved. And I'm just saying that to ask whether any people have gotten involved with the reparations committee out there in California. We have a fourth crime meeting down in San Diego on the 26th. And that is on the agenda. We, we, we're covering all bases. Okay. Uh, we'll be with the black fraternal groups, the divine nine. And, uh, yes, we, we, we're all inclusive. We're making our rounds. And, um, so we'll be in Southern California, as I said, and then we have another session up in Sacramento. Um, before we have the final report to present to the assembly in the Senate. Okay. And, and the reason I ask that, because, um, if history shows us anything about our moves, now I'm not talking about moves by uh, Europeans, but our moves, it's always been some type of reluctancy or pushback. Um, and even now, listen, in this, in the Philadelphia here where I am, uh, I'm a member of Encobra here and I've reached out to the, the business I have that I'm in. Uh, several pastors come to my place of business or people high up in a lot of the popular churches here in the city. And I've asked them about getting involved within Cobra, uh, uh, letting some of the leadership here, because it's, it's young leadership here in this city, come and address uh, maybe some of the congregation, and maybe not on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or having other meetings scheduled. And it's been a reluctance. Um, I guess you know this, and I'm not trying to pat you on the back, uh, 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 Reverend Brown, but all pastors are not like you. Uh, they don't seem to want to get involved. They don't seem to want to confront this issue uh, of dealing with. You know, uh, you know what? You know why they don't get involved? Go ahead. It's because, unfortunately, some have not been enlightened. Mosiah said, "My people perish because of a lack, lack of, knowledge. of knowledge." Okay. And number two, others have been hoodwinked, con, and played with this Pauline theology and conservative reactionary sociology. <clears throat> That's it. I'm sure you saw that movie, The Twelve Years of Slaves. <laughs> yes, I did. That slave, enslaving person, had this group of blacks out there under that tree teaching them the Bible. That Bible, no doubt, that mirrored, reflected what we discovered in the slave Bible that's at the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And do you know, missionaries literally, literally cut out every passage in the Bible that dealt with justice, liberation, and freedom. The prophets, 
like my namesake Amos. Cut it out. Anything that Jesus said in the New Testament about liberation, about inclusion, all that, so cut it out. You see, we've been victimized by this oppressive, otherworldly, backward religiosity that's about emotionalism and about control and not about empowering and liberating the people. And that model of spirituality is of Jesus of Nazareth. He said in his inaugural sermon, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's in the book of Luke. Why? Because he has anointed me to set the captives free. So that enable the lame to walk, health care. Preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What was that? The year of Jubilee in which debts were forgiven, you know. Then he said, now, now is this fulfilled, the nowness of the gospel. And we had too many who have excluded the nowness that you see in the New Testament canon. If we would just follow Jesus only, those preachers you were talking about would not be running away from what you invited them to do. Charles Price Jones, who was real, true, actual founder of the Pentecostal Church and not William Seymour from Houston or Charles Parham from Kansas, that white con artist. They were down there in Los Angeles in 1906 with the Azusa revivals. But they didn't know anything about Charles Price Jones. He and C.H. Mason in my native state of Mississippi founded the Holders Movement in 1897. But there was a split in the movement. Mason said, all I need is the second baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I don't need education. But Charles Bryce Jones said, no, you need both. Education and sanctification. And Charles Bryce Jones founded CMNI College outside of Jackson there. The minister to the head, the heart, the hand, and the will. And he wrote a hymn entitled, Jesus only is my motto. Jesus only is my friend. Jesus is my hard thought. Jesus only. Yes. And he wrote another one entitled, Deeper, Deeper in the Love of Jesus. This brother wrote over a thousand hymns. And by the way, died in 1949 in Los Angeles, California. But when I was a child in Jackson, Mississippi, back in the 50s, I used to go over to Christ Temple Holiness Church. 
Well, on the Sunday afternoon, they had these great song festivals. And boy, they could sing you crazy with diction, with poetry, and emotion. And he wrote over a thousand hymns. Over a thousand. He was the greatest black hymn writer. And many young folks of this generation don't know about Charles Price Jones. And I think that they should learn something about him and also about, what's his name, Kurt Franklin and those new ones doing gospel music. Oh, no, 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 no. They don't have it all. You got to have both. It takes two wings for a bird to fly, two wings for an airplane to stay in the air. And Dubois spoke about our having two-ness in our spirituality and our sociology. Oh, yes, he said it. We got to be balanced. We can't have a whole lot of one-winged people not making it anywhere, like Jack and the Bear, making tracks but going nowhere. <laughs> we got to have two wings. And I pray and hope that there will be more preachers who will be two-winged, who know how to go to a prayer meeting, how to have waiting for the the Holy Ghost and all that good stuff, how to preach great sermon, yes. But we need people, more of them, as sweet Daddy Grace said, who know how to tangibilitate the gospel. He created a word that's not even in the dictionary, tangibilitate. <laughs> and all up and down the eastern seaboard, he fed hungry people. He clothed the naked. Build homes of that universal house of prayer. That's what we need. We need more practitioners of the gospel. Jesus was a practitioner. Taught fishermen how to fish. Oh yes. Let's let's. We uh, need to be practitioners. Let's go to seven one eight seven one eight. Seven one eight. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, good afternoon, Brother Elliot, Brother Richard, Doctor Brown. I appreciate you having me. Oh, that's sister. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. So I'm listening, and um, I hope you don't mind if I go back to the Bruce's Beach um, conversation. So I'm not well versed in it, but I have done some research. And in my limited research, I'm seeing that I'm not sure who Janice Hahn is, but one of the statements that she's made is that um, she says, and I'll, and I'll quote, she said that um, basically what she's saying is this is what reparations look like, and it is a model that I hope governments across the country will follow. And what I find problematic in that statement is that this scenario, although it's determined is the state of California, the city of Los Angeles, attempted to make right a wrong that they have done. It's not really fully reparations. But then when I look through, I see that part of when um, the city um, turned the land over to um, the Bruce's family, if I understand correctly, they were being paid 413 a year to lease uh, because there's some facilities, a lifeguard training facility on a property, and that also... 
um, part of that um, negotiation when they was turning over the property was that they can buy it back from them, and the maximum price was $20 million. And what, if I understand correctly, is that in them returning the property over to them, they agreed to a deal whereas we are turning this back over to you, but within a two-year span, we can purchase this back from you for a maximum of $20 million. I don't see how this reparations where the dominant society, that entity that's responsible for, you know, denying them that generational wealth sets the standard on how much to pay for it, when they get to pay for it, and how much they get stuff. Like, they were still negotiated in their favor. So I find it problematic, and I'd like to know what you all think in terms of identifying and saying that this is reparations, because the reparations to us looks like the, 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 um, the United States government still dictating what a worth is to us and how they define it and how much they're willing to pay for it. Is that truly reparations or is that them just still um, getting the upper hand and reengaging the capitalist uh, way of living that benefits them more so than it benefits them? And I hope my question was clear. I apologize if it wasn't. Oh, well, your question is very clear. I still think it is uh, the, the deal is self-serving, and it does not express a view of the sustainability of black wealth, period. And that's one thing that we have been denied, black wealth. And we wouldn't be having this conversation if we had gotten our 40 acres and a mule that was agreed upon on January the 12th, 1865, in Sherman and Secretary of War Staten's hotel room in Savannah, Georgia, after they had burned down Atlanta when the Confederacy wouldn't give up. When Sherman asked Reverend Garrison Frazier and those other 19 preachers, what does the Union owe you, ex-slaves? And old man Frazier spoke up and said, I can't speak for everybody, General. But as for my house, I feel that we should have some of this land that we have been slaving on. Why can't we have 40 acres and a mule? But what happened when Andrew Johnson became president of this country after Mr. Lincoln was assassinated and unfortunately it was Johnson who sought to repeal what was field order number 15 setting aside that land from the coast of Florida South Carolina and Georgia those southern states and he almost was impeached and he only stayed on by one vote. He even tried to kill Freeman's Bureau, that bureau that founded Howard University. So you see, I repeat, we had all of our land that was to come to us, and we were not, we were not thrown into that penis system of sharecropping after that infamous 
effort on the part of Johnson, we would be economically empowered today, I contend. But they threw roadblocks, and they're still doing it. The redlining today, through devaluing our properties in certain inner city communities, so they would cut our wealth. I think that answer that and the sister's right. Sister, uh, did, uh, did that answer your question? Yes, but he gave me a follow-up question. Can I please um, do um, a follow-up question? Certainly. My follow-up is, and you bring up uh, Special Seal Order 15 and what occurred after that, in modern day, just two things that the Bruce's Beach um, gives me in your statement. The first thing is, in this fight for reparations, and as part of uh, one of the pillars of the protections in um, NARA repeat, and, you know, I'm not going to go through all the five pillars, but is what is the terroristic threat present day when we receive reparations? What does that terroristic threat look like? And that's, that's threatening us um, and, and the generation of wealth that we're looking to have for um, our, our children to come after us. The second thing is, for me, what comes out of Bruce's Beak is, for me, for, for me only, is an example of what not to do at the negotiating table. And, um, and I think um, this is a learning lesson, whereas we cannot be in negotiations with an entity, a group of people, that are looking to be self-serving and looking to come out and to keep us bottom cast in some way, shape, or form. Because again, as I'm looking at the Bruce's Beach, not only did they cat tell them the max that you can sell it back to us for is 20 million, they also were created a situation where they couldn't build or do anything with that land to make it profitable for them. So they were handicapped in various different ways. That like even if they were to um, to do anything more than what the city has um, allowed for them to do up to present day, they would have been tied up in bureaucracy and paperwork. So basically, on a go forward basis, as we're negotiating, we have to go to the table and we have to be smarter than those that are looking to profit and keep us as bottom cast, despite the fact that they're accounting this whole idea of reparations and or atonement. So that was two questions, and I'm I'm quite sure I, I staffed, and I apologize for that. But again, I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution, sister. Well, she's answered a question. We must stop being hoodwinked by the folks who've been in power who've tricked us out of far too much. That's all. Do our best thinking. Get consultants. And know how to play your hand so that we come out on top and not at the bottom. And I, and I, would, add, I would add, too, is the, I mean, it's not just adding, but uh, expanding on what both of you um, make reference to, because we have to have a leverage position as a power position when we're negotiating, one. I mean, based off of what we get. And we also have to have good negotiators know how to utilize, know what is that leverage position and know how to utilize. And the question is whether some of the people that are around us or amongst us, are they, um, do they know what is that power leverage that we have 
And are they good negotiators in being able to get uh, or may or create terms that really uh, maintain whatever we are trying to acquire based off of this negotiation? Um, that that's a reaction that comes out of you know the exchange or the question and the exchange um, for us. But we should when whenever we are dealing with anything, we ought to keep in mind: Did our maker ordain it to be so? That we would be at the bottom? No. Well, if it didn't, we need to stop acting like that. <laughs> we need to stop buying into any scheme, any religiosity, any educational process that keeps us from knowing the truth and dealing with the truth. That prophet Jesus of Nazareth said, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And many times we go into situations without getting all of the facts. Remember Joe Friday and Dragnet always would say, when people would come up with opinionated statements, or I heard it appears to me and all that stuff, he would always say, nothing but the facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts, man. <laughs> And we've got to deal with facts and reality and moral suasion. But it was immoral, evil, and unethical for this world and this nation to done to us what they've done simply because we were black. Not because we've done anything wrong in particular. They wanted to make us inhumane, inhuman tools for their benefit. And they did that for all those years. White House was built by enslaved labor. Congress was built by enslaved labor. The levies built by enslaved labor. And we made Cotton King and helped Western Europe build the crown and everything, the king and the queen. Africa has been raped of its natural resources. And even today, when it comes to manufacturing and having great exports for Africa, it's not fair. It's not just. Now today, though we can welcome people from everywhere who want to be involved in fair business deals, but now today, who's all over East Africa and West Africa? China. United States. Another thing that we got to speak about is that we have a lot of these so-called not all of them, I quantify that, but many of these so-called white evangelicals who are over there dumping on Africa, <laughs> this conservative, right-wing, controlling brand, this counterfeit brand of Christianity that's all about just going to heaven. It's all about just getting my individual soul saved. And you see billboards all up and down those roads, such as they are. 
But today, the one faith community that's trying to have reckoning on this issue of race and oppression is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are working with the National NACP on many great initiatives. And on April the 13th this year, the Tabernacle Choir will be singing at King International Chapel in Atlanta. At which time other initiatives will be announced. Many people don't know the history of what used to be the Mormon Church. Joseph Smith in 1830 started this movement. But he was also uh, an abolitionist up in Fayette, New York, New York, upstate New York. Check it out. Google it. And Joseph Smith ran for president of the United States in 1844. And one of the major planks in his platform was the abolition of slavery by 1850. Thus, Joseph Smith tried to deal with this issue, this original sin of America. But his life was cut short. He and his brother Hiram were assassinated in 1844. But it was Brigham Young who was the conservative and had too much racism in him who as the church moved forward westward insisted that Utah would be admitted into the Union as a slave trade state, excuse me. Fast forward to today, President Russell Nelson is a great gentleman and that faith community, that denomination body made overtures to the NACP nationally, and they put money behind their mouths and establishing programs for economic empowerment, for education, even gave money to the United Negro College Fund for scholarships for black young people to go to historically black colleges in the South. So I thought I would drop that there as we talk about this issue of reparation. Yes, they have been transparent enough to admit that there were schisms, there were splits, and there were even conservative wings in that church. But they want to do something about the now, the now, like Jesus in his first sermon. And remember, it was Mitt Romney, who because of his faith, who would not go along with the foolishness of one Donald Trump. He stood alone, voted against him. So let's look at the totality of the reality and tell the truth. Be truth tellers. And we too must, as Dr. King said a long time ago, in our own communities, assume responsibility for doing some things for ourselves. But that other end of the wing is the majority of this state of this state and this nation must stop generalizing on black folk, must stop denying us equality of opportunity, must stop making false statements about us, 
Give us credit for what we do that's great. And what we're wrong, make sure that we get due process. Because all our persons look forward to getting. And when we do that, we will make some greater strides towards freedom, justice, democracy, and peace. You know, you know, Reverend Brown, if I may, and Elliot, if I may, it's uh, respecting the, the work that the commission did, uh, is doing, um, respecting, you know, the focus point being about reparation. As I look at the preliminary, excuse me, <clears throat> the preliminary recommendation for future deliberations, two sections um, based off of what we spoke about earlier, and I noticed you you bring up you brought up his name a couple of times, and it, he really really just became conscious to me that he is uh, a representative in California, and that's Kevin McCarthy. The um, political disenfranchisement section and the section in enslavement, and and what you know what 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 raises my concern, and 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 it is. The executive summary is what it is, and 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 you raised earlier the importance of being, you know, that this being practical. Um, but when I look at look at the bullet points um, from the political disenfranchisement, I, I I I probably need to get more insight into how um, this operates to benefit black Californians when you say right now 200,000 black folks in California don't vote. And I look at the the bullet points and I and I I do see the political education, I do see the state funding, I do see the 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 legislation um to prevent delusion of black votes. I see those things, but something doesn't gel in how does it um provide black Californians the political um, unity to, to confront the state. And this goes to my point, and I apologize for being long on this, in relationship well, to well, the section. Well, let me ask that. Mm-hmm. We've been practicing that we always know how to do. Remember, I was a part of the summer of 1964. Mm-hmm. We got up as students, black and white, went south into Mississippi Delta, that's why Swanna Goodman and Cheney lost their lives. That's why Reverend George Washington Lee's jaw was shot off by members of the White Citizens Council because he would not take his name off of the voting list in Humphreys County, Mississippi. In 1955, May the 7th, the point that I'm making by citing all this, we got to fight the good fight. We know how to organize. But we must come up off of our stools of do nothing. Talk to each other. Love each other. Be consistent. Consistent. Not a lick and a promise. But be consistent in showing people how your vote does count. And also working with souls to the polls. As we saved the day down there in Atlanta with my friend, Dr. Raphael, Warnock, worked a miracle through the power of God and through their being fellow laborers with God. 
Come on. It's a matter of work. And I, and, I, and I understand that, and that's what's raising my question, because now that McCarthy is, what is it, the Speaker of the House, he's in California, and this recommendation has to go through the, I mean, it's to go to to the State House of California uh, I, to make it a question. Do you think that McCarthy will have any influence on Newt, what's his name, the governor, in relation? No, not Gavin, no, no, no. <laughs> A trillion times, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, I but listen, Gavin Newsom and I sat on the Board of Supervisors here in San Francisco. He and McCarthy don't walk on the same side of the street. You know, all he's doing to give a woman the right to choose and say what will be done with her body, Newsom stood up for that stood up for gay rights. And also, he's the one who signed this task force into legislation and law. So no, no, Governor Newsom and, and no, the answer is no, 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 no. So I see a no as it relates to California and, 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 and McCarthy, McCarthy's um, influence on the governor. Um, I see one under the enslavement um, portion of the recommendation. It says to transmit the task for final report and findings to the president and the Congress with recommendations that the federal government create a reparation commission for African Americans and uh, uh, Americans. Yeah, that, that's something. That's something to happen at the federal level. That 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 the, the one Kanye has been working on for years. So and now, uh, Ms. Barbara Lee. See, that's why we got to do our homework. We got to do diligence. To fight on. This thing is a struggle. It's not a cakewalk. So that we got to make sure that in all of these states, all of them, we not let anybody intimidate us and tell us that we can't vote. We got to, whenever they come up with nonsense and mess to suppress the vote, or disenfranchise us, we got to fight back. Reverend Brown, hey. I want to thank you for being with us this evening to uh well, to thank bring you his... for the opportunity and know that any time we're delighted to have conversation with your audience and I welcome with great delight and joy to speak back to old Philadelphia area. Well, listen before where you... I started my career, I know Doctor. Show at White Rock and Dr. Mapson over there at Monumental Baptist Church, and I knew very well Dr. Leon Howard Sullivan, for he and I together founded that African African American Summit way back in 1990. We built bridges with scholars and uh, people who uh, wanted to connect with the motherland. Teachers program. Uh, so I get excited when somebody mentions Philadelphia. And I did a doctoral dissertation on Charles Albert Tindler's song ministry and his career. Oh boy, I could talk all night about Dr. Tindler. Mm. And young folks need to know about him. 
That's one of our problems. We don't pass it on from generation to generation. We ought to have African-American history not once a year, a month, used to be a week. It ought to be every week in every church. We ought to bring our young folks together and say, sit down, let me tell you how you got over. We need to have Sankofa moments, which means to look forward, that bird looking forward and looking backwards, rather, to go forward with an egg in its mouth. And it says to us all, you will not have pregnant possibilities for the future if you don't first know your history. The man who wrote the first, the first history of the Negro race, who became a black Baptist preacher, George Washington Williams, was born at Bedford Springs, Pennsylvania, back in the 1840s. And he was the first black to finish Andover Institute, became pastor of the great, the great, 12th Baptist Church of Boston, Massachusetts, at the age of 24. And he competed with students who had gone to Harvard, Colby, and Brown universities, and finished a theological course, four-year course, in three years. But that book, History of the Negro Race, from 1619 to 1880, was written by him when he was pastor of the Union Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he was the first black to serve in the Ohio State Legislature. And he was in that conference on Africa back in 1882, 84. Unfortunately, he died at a young age, 41. When he went to Africa to do a feasibility study for a railroad to be built in the Belgian Congo. Collins Hunterton, the great railroad tycoon, who built the Southern Pacific Railroad, struck up a deal with him that if he went to Africa to do that feasibility study, he would fund his travels across Africa to learn more about his history and heritage. And he also wrote an open letter, a foreign policy open letter, around that time, condemning the evils of Leopold II, who was mean to the Belgian Congo, and sent that letter to President Buchanan. So you see, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, mean a lot to me. And that book, by the way, I had a copy of it that I got from my father's bookshelf. I didn't have to wait for no once a year for African American History Month to know about who really was the first great black historian. I saw that book, cracked it open, and my eyes fell on that chapter that dealt with the Negro soldier and the Civil War. Didn't know much about evaluating the book then, but thank God I read it. For in 2006, John Hope Franklin, the great historian, one of the first blacks to get a PhD degree from Harvard University in history, came to do a lecture at Third Baptist on his memoirs, Mirror to America. 
And when a group of students gathered around and faculty members from San Francisco State in our sanctuary that night to hear him, one student asked, what was the one book that you wrote that you enjoyed writing the most? And he responded by saying, you wouldn't believe it. It was not From Slavery to Freedom. It was not even my memoirs, Mirror to America. It was a biography that I wrote on the history, uh, on the biography I wrote, excuse me, on the life of the first black historian, a black preacher named George Washington Williams. And that night, my friends, I said, my God, that's who that man was that I read about when I was 13. And that book of mine, off of my father's bookshelf, is now on display in the Smithsonian African-African-American Museum in Washington, D.C. And my brief biography as a civil rights activist with Dr. King, John Lewis, Shuttlesworth, and others. So thank you tonight for letting me share with you. But God knows we will be a better people if we have more of these kinds of conversations. Listen to each other, to share the facts, and to speak truth to the powers of this country. You know what? And, and uh, I'll reach out to you probably a couple more times before July because I think they said some of the the uh, the the findings or the uh, the final document will be out in July or the final findings. Uh, yes. But you, you would know better than me. But uh, we'll, we'll reach out to you. Well, l- before you go, let me see if this caller wants to ask you a question or comment. Let's go to two one two two one two. Maybe, maybe they Good don't. evening. This is uh, Brother Maurice. Hey, sir. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, no, I, I just wanted to, to, to um, make a comment about the whole idea behind uh, the philosophy of voting. And voting, I, I think, is important, but I think there also has to be some type of level of political intelligence. And what I mean by that is that we just saw in this particular Congress— 20 people hold up the whole government for moving forward. And what frustrated me about watching those 20 Republicans do that is that we have a congressional black caucus from the 117th Congress that have 56 what? people in it. You, you know what, Brother we, Maurice? We do, get any, do, do, do me a favor. Excuse I'm, me? Do me a favor. I'm going to hold you over because I'm going to let uh, Reverend Brown go. And, that, and then we'll come back. And, okay. and, and I want you to hold your point. Okay. Okay. Reverend Brown? Thank you so much. I'll be in touch with you, sir. God bless you. All right. We're going to take a... Have a good evening. You too. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll go straight back to New York uh, with Brother Maurice. And you can get involved, too, in the conversation while we're still on by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back.
to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media. Part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 2444 that number is 215-885-2444 215-885-2444 all insurance incorporated Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger. Run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu Black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu Black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. I am an African. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this this country who try to claim that they are not Africans. 
who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you'd better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I'm an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions. Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years. this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football.
listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Uh, thank our guest that was with us this evening and uh, we'll spin off an open forum for the time we have left and let's go straight back to New York City 212 Brother Maurice yeah um, first of all I enjoyed uh, 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 Pastor Brown and it, and I love what the sister said because when I uh, pertaining to the deal because when I read about that original deal I, I looked at that and I said to myself that didn't make any sense to me they have a right to um buy back and the point that she made is a point i made on my show where i said how do you allow the criminal to tell you what the sentence is going to be it doesn't make any sense to me so going back to um the point i was trying to make p- about political intelligence you saw that 20 people were able to do something that 56 in the last congress couldn't do they held the whole congress up we have a congressional black caucus with 56 members in the 117th congress and we couldn't get George Floyd through. We couldn't get voting rights through uh, with, with John Lewis. We couldn't get the black farmers what was due them. And I'm saying to myself, this is, a, this is about political intelligence as well as political loyalty to a particular group. Yes. Because these people stuck to their principles and said, I'm not, we're not moving until we get some compromise on what we want. I want black people to look at that and then think about the people that are leading you, that you're voting for, and sending them to these offices on a local, statewide, and national level to understand that they're not willing to go that far for you, then we shouldn't be putting them in office. One other thing I want to talk about, and I thought about, uh, I want to see what, what, what uh, Pastor Brown will say about this, because this is interesting because it touched base on what's going on in California, what started in California. This whole idea behind um, marijuana uh, equity and reparations and stuff started out in San Francisco. They were the first ones to actually pass the laws to try to um, ameliorate what happened to individuals that got convicted because, you know, the majority of blacks um, and Latinos got arrested for marijuana possession and did time. So this whole idea of now making marijuana legal and then bringing it into the system and then giving them first dibs at it, uh, people who are saying this makes sense, and then until you look at the numbers, and, and uh, in California, the it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a license. It's about the same in New York City, I think. Okay, and then the thing that I thought was interesting when I'm looking at the first store that opened in New York, we had a lot of black people at out front helping, but the people that were running that organization were not black. And so what I said to myself is, we don't have the resources. How do we get equity, right? Because we can't open the stores. We can't open or own them. How do we get equity? And I thought about something. I said, well, let's take something very simple. And I want to hear what Richard has to say about this. I said, let's take something very simple from what they did. Let's Let's do what the French did to the African nations. If you want equity, you have to open up. We have a nonprofit, say, um, say a nonprofit, uh, a uh, bank or whatever, or uh, I'm trying to think of the name of um, the savings and loans or something like, uh, or um, 
I can't get the name out right now, but they will be required, those people that are, that are selling marijuana and making a profit off it, to take half of that money and put it in black banks, and black people be able to access that money to help build their communities. Just like they did if with France did to those African nations. They made them, and then they would borrow against that money. Why are we not using the same type of principle? Because we don't have the money to buy the places, except for some of the rich black people that partner with these white people to do it. But we can make sure that the profits that they're making can come back in the community and they can, we can lend money to people in the community to build and do those things, and we don't have to rely um, on, on these bigger banks and stuff. And it just, it just makes sense to me. So I, I just wanted to, you know, see what you thought about that. And uh, I don't want to take up too much time because I know you got other people waiting. So I'm, 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 I'm going to hang up and then listen. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Uh, Richard. Yeah. Are you talking about community reinvestment um, banks um, as, as the instrument? Right. Well, well, what I'm talking about is marijuana. They're selling right. it now. They're right. making it legal over the place. But we, they, there's a problem with it because it's not federally legal, so they have to find a place to put the money. I'm saying we should create institutions as part of the deal that they have to put those monies in banks in black communities. And then, and then what black people would do is use that money to lend and build in our own communities. Mm-hmm. They would have to keep up a certain percentage of it, and we lend them the rest out. The same thing that France did to African nations. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. It makes a whole lot of sense because now we don't have to worry about going to these bigger banks to make loans in our communities. We'll have that profit that's coming in from this marijuana equity thing. They have to maintain 50% of that profit in those banks, in those black and Latino communities. Mm -hmm. And we can take that money and lend people to do what they need to do in the community. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, that's a strategy. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, um, I would have to see the, but I'm, I'm, as you're saying this, with the thing that I'm thinking of is um, because one at one point community development that I seen that would have been controlled by black folks were in in the churches creating credit unions, and um, that's what I'm, that's the word I couldn't get out exactly credit unions, right? And, and, you know, because churches could have credit unions within their institutions, and in those credit unions, since they're um, primarily um, deal with real estate, the money goes in and they're reinvesting within the land development with around in the community as opposed to the communities that they're, um, that the church sits in. But as, uh, as Reverend Brown r- raised that if the, cause, and we, you know, um, uh, Elliot and myself, we had uh, attempted to try to outreach, identify, at least in Philadelphia, some churches with credit unions, you know, with that, that tactic in mind. Um, and what I find in general, a lot of the churches that they're, they're, they're not there. So the leadership is not there. The, um, they're not, the, they're not creating that, they, you know, in the sense of having that kind of vision. Um, and then, you know, that, but that's a, a possible um, resource where people who want to go into marijuana, um, you know, dispensaries and whatever, that business within the state, if I understand you right, then they could be able to park that money and then they're parking that money in that church. They stayed in the state. And then by the dictate of that credit union that's in that community, it could be reinvesting within the community as a part of the development right. for the money there. It's, so it's a lot, a lot so what we're trying to do here, 
I'm sorry, brother. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying the logic is there. Because what we're and, and, and again, um, Don Pop, and again, my community is with Charles Barron is at, and he's one of the few people to get that get a, has an understanding. We're creating what they call community a community trust. So, when black people decide that they're going to move or leave out of the community, we want first dibs at the properties that we want to create a fund so we can buy it, so we can stop them from gentrifying this particular area. You know, they like to talk about how bad the particular area is, and they got a TV show on on it's on right now talking about my area. But what people don't know about this particular, it is located centrally. To almost any place you can, you need to get to, you can do it here. You got buses, you got trains, you got highways, you got everything. It's, it's strategic. It's one of the reasons why my father and mother bought the house in this particular neighborhood. And so we know uh, part of that conversation about having the money available is that we can also use it to, to, in community trust to buy up those properties and stop them from gentrifying these particular areas. But it makes sense to me. And again, I'm disappointed because again, I'm looking at the Republicans. I say, you know, if we're gonna we're gonna take a um uh look at something, we're gonna complain about things. Let's at least learn from what we're seeing. Twenty people held up the government, and what a lot of people don't even realize about this whole conversation is that what's coming next, which is already uh, on the Republicans' mind, is austerity. Austerity meaning they're gonna cut the budget, and then what area is gonna get cut? And whenever there's, whenever any areas get cut, we know it impacts us because now we're talking about uh, the the issue is the debt ceiling, right? They have to they have to make a deal on the debt ceiling. A lot of these Republicans, this, these conservative Republicans, don't want to raise the debt, or if they do it, they want to make it seem like only the Democrats are doing this, so they can use it as a political tool to vote against them. So this is what this is why this whole thing went down, and then and then again they're going to cut the budget. And it's going to impact on everything that we're doing. And, and so what I'm frustrated about is I said 20 was able to do what 56 couldn't do in the last Congress. 56 members of the Congressional Black Caucus, nobody thought of this particular strategy to say, okay, let me just say this. You can't be thought of no words. They already think negative about you. So you may as well give them something to hate you about, right? You may as well give them something to hate you about when you stand up and fighting for your own damn people. There's been no way I would have voted for any of that stuff. You know, and, 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 and again, I know I'm, you have a lot of apologists that are out there saying that this person did this and this person did that. I understand that. But a part of negotiation is getting something out of it, and we don't have those things that we asked for. But We're still I, waiting. But I think the, the part of the negotiation is that the people who are negotiating – are thinking, uh, are representing the people that they're negotiating for. If they're only renegotiating exactly. for themselves and the ne- the nepotism of individuals around them, that's different than and and you and the information you send send us. Um, I you know when we use if we use um, Representative Barron, you can see even by you raising about the trust to be able to that that's someone who's thinking about the people in that space more than just thinking about the people around them in the political space. And now I think that most of the democratic um, black of the, the congressional black caucus only are thinking of the people around them and maintaining themselves, not necessarily 
of the people who live within the geography that they represent. Uh, then they could be able to negotiate with each other, um, to, you know, how they can come up with something. But they're not looking at that. They're 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 it's a they're opportunists. Not beyond that, it's an individual business. Yeah, they trying to get paid. Yep. You know, um, you, I mean, you, you, <laughs> you raise a good point, Maurice, because, uh, I mean, just like Reverend Brown was saying, those are the facts, not just out here voting so we could see black faces and, and be a cheerleading session. Those are the facts, which you just mentioned. And see, we've seen an example of that with that budget that uh, that was passed, that first budget that Biden passed, and it was always wrangling about that money that black farmers had gotten out of it, that they didn't get paid. So mm-hmm. when, when this new budget came in, what, about two months ago, I forgot. The Build Back Better, I think, was the first one. This second one, I forgot the name of it. That cut the money. The Inflationary at, um, Reduction the infl- Act. Inflation Reduction Act. Act. Yeah. yeah. The Inflation Reduction Act came out and cut that money that was supposed to be given to black farmers that they never got anyway. And it was two people that held that up all that time, Mansion and Cinema. And you got, like you said, 56 members of a black caucus that don't hold up nothing. They don't hold up anything. You just gave that example. Well, of, that's not true, Elliot. They are holding up something. Well, They're holding I mean, up black progress. Well, okay. They're holding up black progress. Okay, I agree with that. But you know you, you know what I was talking about when I said they don't hold oh, up no, anything. I'm being funny. Yes, okay. I'm being funny. They're holding up black progress because there's things that we have to have. And um, I'm just frustrated because... Um, I, I even said on my TV show this air and this week, I said, you know, I was walking around Brooklyn in an area that I knew used to be traditionally black and I saw nothing but young white people and stuff. And I said, you know, when they used to, when the Aborigines said, you knew when the, when they were coming is when you saw, they saw that you saw the telegraph pole, you knew in the railroad, you knew they were coming. And the new thing now is a bicycle lane. As soon as you see a bicycle lane in your neighborhood, because they know black people ride no bike in their neighborhood, when you see a bicycle lane in your neighborhood, you know who's coming. And so we have to fight that. We have to fight that on the community boards. We have to fight and put people on those boards that care about us, um, that care about what, because I, I, I said this on my show, I feel like a stranger in my own city. I feel like a stranger. I, I'm like looking at traditionally black areas, and I'm looking at all these people that don't look like me. Um, I'll give you a perfect example of something that frustrated me. There was a club across from the Barclays Center, right? The basketball center for the Nets. There was this black, black, um, Caribbean people had this club and had it for years. People used to all go there and have a good time or whatever. Of course, the neighborhood started changing. Then they were calling the police on the club because they were saying they were making too much noise. New people moved into there, didn't try to negotiate with the people to work with them, they were calling the police on them. They even made it on the news, and the people were saying, we've been here for years. But what was the political mistake that people made? They allowed people to get control of the community board, and when they were able to do it, they changed everything around. <laughs> and that black business is gone now. And I said to myself, that's another lesson right there. Because they were there for years before the stadium got built. Years. And then you got somebody that just moves in and says, I don't like this. Same thing, and, and, and that's what's happening in our communities. It was happening in South Philadelphia. People are moving in, and they're, they're accommodating themselves, adjusting everything for their comfort, not for yours. You're a stranger in your own city. Yeah. 
Okay, I'm going to shut up and get off now. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, thanks for your contribution, man. Okay, now. Peace. Peace. Richard, he raises a good point about the, uh, and, I, you know, we talked about it before when Mansion and Cinema held stuff up, and then when they come back, uh, the black farmers was totally written out of that bill, and then they told those lies. Schumer uh, came on uh, uh, uh the, the the golden eagle and told those lies and boy you remember when, when john boy came on there and now here's another example and i didn't i wasn't even thinking about it from that respect but here's another example you got 56 members of a black caucus that can't hold up these uh, uh bills whether it's george floyd uh the police reform act the voting rights act or even that money for farmers you got uh, Ben Crump that got to file a suit against this government for something that they lied about and put money in the budget and then none, none of them ever get it. Yeah. And, that, and that goes, Richard, that goes to what the sister had brought up. And she raised an excellent point. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to consider this. In fact, I know the brothers and sisters have considered this that's working on these things because if you use history as your guide and you have to, when you're dealing with our struggle here, if you use history as your guide, Europeans have never been persuaded morally to do anything. Now mm. maybe you can clear it up for me, Richard, cause you know, history better than me. No, I'm no historian. You, I mean, you, you, I, I kind of rely on you when it comes to historical points. But Europeans have never done anything with a moral persuasion. They've always had something that have pushed them, whether it's a, a threat of violence, violence going on, or people seeing them being violent and they want to give another impression of, of their humanity. It's always been something that have pushed them, mm-hmm. even during the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, the direct action... That was taken, and I'm not talking about King and, and the people being in restaurants and all and, and marching and getting beat up and hoses and dogs turned on. But it was other stuff going on, too, in a lot of these cities. Right. Which spurred that Corintel Pro. But even that, even the King, uh, the, the civil rights movement, nonviolent movement that the King was involved in, they was embarrassed. The world starts seeing them with the, what they were doing to black people here. And that embarrassment kind of forced them, along with other things, to change laws. But in, in, when they changed laws, they built outs in the laws so they can keep on doing business as usual. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about, about the double cross. It's always been a double cross. We can't put no stock in what these people are saying. We just can't. And, and the that's one thing- why I was going to that political, you know, what I seen in the recommendations, but I understand the point. Uh, yeah, and the right. And the one thing that uh, I was going to mention to Reverend Brown, but I, I would rather have uh, 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 the sister Camila Moore come on to to talk about it because in this published report, it mentions that uh, if I could find it, I would mix my papers up. <clears throat> it mentions something here, Richard when she talked about uh, black homeless, if there's any money to be given 
the black homeless uh, should get the most because of their situation. And it says here in this published report, it says her statements come back, uh, come after black activists in the community warn that if the state don't comply uh, with reparations agreements, uh, uh, they need to comply with reparations agreements to avoid a serious backlash. So it's people already talking about if these things are not complied with after all the work that these people have put in, that it's going to be some repercussions. The community talking about repercussions. So, mm. and I'm not saying that these things need to be discussed on the air or whatever, not at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we have to have a plan B. Because history shows that these people is not, you know, they're not going to do anything willingly. They're just not. Nope. That's that's that political leverage. I mean, we have to have leverage. Um, You can't just, you know, as you say, you can't just go in negotiating with good faith. And and that is not political leverage. Power leverage. You know, and I just, um, whether it is the 56 members holding up a, another uh, legislative bill, using that as an example, um, say, which I could, as y'all were mentioning, the, it would be the uh, arms, I mean, the, for the Defense Department, it would be for the, the transportation, um, the uh, infrastructure bill. They would have to hold those um, bills up that the others want to happen on both sides of the aisle by saying, if you don't do this, whether it be the George Floyd or whatever uh, uh, bill, we are not going to support that. Yeah, but and you might you, they have the numbers. You might not get politicians to do anything in reference to that, Richard. The right. things I'm talking about, the things I'm talking about, might co- have to come from the grassroots or the average right. person, right? Because just look at the, the Montgomery boycott. Now that was instituted by the church down there. And they got black people to stay off buses, which hurt white businesses because blacks wasn't coming down there spending. So whether something has to be instituted on that basis or another basis, it has to be some type of repercussions that the people can institute that'll hurt these people. Mm. Now, the church was instrumental in doing it in the 50s, the bus boycott. That's why I asked Reverend Brown about, you remember the question I asked him about some of the churches not wanting to get involved in this situation, in this struggle. <laughs> yeah, so if if you don't have your churches behind you, well, they're supposed to be because that's supposed to be an extension of the black community, and you definitely don't have your political watchdogs behind you, then you have to do it yourself. And that's going to put you at odds with some of the people that's supposed to be representing you. It's clear. Mm-hmm. To me, it's clear. Yeah, I agree. We, 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 we got some things that we got to deal with. Just like the elder says in that collage I play, we, we got some issues that we got to confront. I mean, when listen, when when Harriet took off 
and, and, and made her escape. She knew that her life was going to be in jeopardy by more than just the Caucasians chasing her. And I know you. Uh, I know you agree with that, Richard. No, I agree. Now, let me. <clears throat> uh, listen, Reverend Brown said the facts. Here's some more facts. Um, I think earlier this week, uh, Jeffries made his speech as being speaker. I don't know whether you heard it, Richard. No. I- I, I think he was trying to channel Jesse Jackson because it was all types of rhymes and, and, you know, stuff. And, and, and people was yelling in the background. So I don't know. And it might have been heckless because he kept stopping briefly. I, I watched, watched it just to hear some of the, the, the gobbledygook. Um, but if you remember, Richard, when we, when, uh, I played the clip of, um, his, interaction with the American Jewish Coalition. You remember that? Right. And he stated that uh, when she asked him about uh, black leadership, black athletes, and and, uh, black entertainers being anti-Semitic, and he said first that he cherished their relationship because it has been uh, rewarding to him. You remember when he said that? Right, right. Um. Let, let me read this because that clip was from when he appeared before the American Jewish Coalition. Here's another clip where he j- appeared before APAC and what he said. Uh, and then I want to read a couple of these published reports. If I can find that clip. This is uh, your new house speaker. And I say that with uh, tongue-in-cheek. If I can put this up. Yeah, here it is. But but someone said to me, uh, they said, Hakeem, you're going to Israel a fifth time? I said, listen, I'm from New York City. And, and back home, back home in New York City, we consider Jerusalem to be the sixth borough. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn in the late 80s and early 90s. I know from tough neighborhoods, Israel lives in a tough neighborhood. And and when you live in a tough neighborhood and when you go on a trip and you're able to experience that uh, through the eyes of those who have to live it every day, then you you know why it's important uh, for Israel to maintain its qualitative military edge, to continue to be strong. As long as I have the opportunity to serve in Congress, I'm going to make sure that that aid continues in a strongly robust fashion, no conditions. We're a robust family. We're an enthusiastic family. Uh, The one thing I can say is that we will remain a strongly pro-Israel family as well. We put a resolution on the floor of the House to condemn BDS and the effort to try to delegitimize the state of Israel. I think your presence here today is incredibly uh, important and the conversations that you'll be having later on today uh, at the reception and also, of course, as you descend upon the Hill and interact uh, with members in both the House and the Senate, uh, to, to emphasize that, of course, the relationship is anchored in values. The relationship is anchored in Israel being an incredibly strong ally and friend 
in one of the toughest parts of the world, and that's uh, strategically important to the safety and well-being, of course, of our country and the people that we uh, represent. Richard, um, right. now, I thought that he represents the 8th District in New York, which is still predominantly black. So when he talk about shared values of the people he represent, who is he talking about? Mm-hmm. See, let, let's get to the facts of this. It's just like Reverend Brown was saying, the facts. I ain't cheerleading for none of these people. When he said he's representing the shared values of the people, he, he represents the 8th District in New York City, 8th Congressional District, that is still predominantly black. Now, that, that the comment that he made, I think he goes around and says it to other Jewish groups because that comment he made, I played the clip when he was talking before the American Jewish coalition, he said the same thing. This one, he talking in front of APAC. Right. And he said that you need to be, that they live in a tough neighborhood. He grew up in a tough neighborhood and you need to, they always under tax. So they need to be prepared. Mm-hmm. I think black people, uh, by and large, generally, generationally, have lived in a quote-unquote tough neighborhood in this environment that we lived in in this country. Is he preparing our people to be able to deal with this? Why are you concerned about some Europeans that live on the other side of the globe? Now, let, let me read a couple of these published reports here because we see here, you know, the black people is always dealing with this boogeyman, the Republican Party, when both of these parties are the same. Like one of our callers always mentioned, they wings are the same bird. You've seen where a Biden went to Kentucky early this week and met with McConnell. Or maybe it was late last week. Mm -hmm. You've seen that, Richard. Right. McConnell. Now, black people, that's next to Trump. That's black people's arch enemy, Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. But he ain't no arch enemy of Biden. They're friends. And Biden is supposed to be your friend. And I'm saying that tongue in cheek now. Biden is supposed to be your friend that's working in your interests, that's concerned about black people. But he's McConnell's friend. How does that work? And he went there to basically reach out to McConnell and his constituents, saying that they're going to be taken care of. Now, let me... Let me read a couple of these uh, published reports here. One from The Guardian. This other one from The Jewish Insider. And another one from a Jewish paper. Keep in mind, Richard, that... Keep in mind, Richard, that uh, this new government going in in Israel is supposed to be an ultra-right government, similar to, like, a Trump government here. You're familiar with that, right? Right. Now, let me read a couple of these from these reports here. Now, the header in this one article, uh, guard, uh, Guardian article says, Hakeem Jeffries, and this was before he was he was uh, confirmed. This one article was from early December. It says, Hakeem Jeffries likely elevation set to please U.S. pro-Israeli groups. I'll just read a couple paragraphs. The prospect of Jeffries heading the Democrats in the House have been greeted with delight by hardline 
pro-Israel groups. Now, those hardline groups is the quote-unquote right-wing Israel. Mm-hmm. Israel. Sim- yeah. Similar to a Republican Trump-led government here for black people that don't follow, you know, what's going on over there. It says, former Democratic, excuse me, hold on a second. Jeffries is arguably even more pro-Israel than Nancy Pelosi. He takes money from lobby groups like pro-Israel America. He attends APAC delegations to the region where he's met and posed for pictures with Benjamin Netanyahu. He refers to Jerusalem as New York's sixth borough. He opposes the BDS movement in any attempt to condition U.S. military aid to Israel. In 2020, Jeffries told a conference in the U.S. largest, most powerful pro-Israel lobby group, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, that back home, New York City is considered Jerusalem to be the sixth borough. Now, it talks about the money that he has taken from these groups. It says Jeffries maintains a close APAC, close ties to APAC and other hardline pro-Israel lobby groups. One of them, pro-Israel America, was the highest, was his highest largest single donor over the past year, giving him more than $231,000. Pro-Israel lobby groups gave him 460000 in total, second only uh, to donations from financial the financial industry. So he has, just like he said in that clip I played a couple of weeks ago, Richard, about his relationship with the American Jewish Coalition has been rewarding. Well, we can see the rewards. Right. <clears throat> now here's a, uh, this is from uh, uh, another published report talking about uh, it's an AJC, AJP action report. The report from the AJP action looks at Israel's lobby spending in recent, uh, this recent U.S. midterm elections. Pro-Israel lobby groups spent more than $30 million on contests and on candidates. These candidates got the most money, and it's not really surprising. Now, it mentions 10 candidates here, or 10 people that won office. Some of them was incumbents, some brand new. It's five, it's, they mentioned 10. It happens to be five white and five black. I'm not going to read the whites because I'm not really concerned. But number one that got the most money was Chantel Brown. If you remember, she's from Ohio, Richard. She right. ran against uh, Nina Turner. Uh, Israel Library Groups gave her over $1 million. Mm-hmm. Glenn Ivey in Maryland was number four. They gave him over $697,000, over a quarter, over half a million dollars. In eighth place was Jeffries with $459,000. Then you had, uh, in 10th place, of Valerie Foshney. She's uh, from North Carolina. She uh, got $429,000. 
It says the report breaks down the party disparity. Uh, the election of pro-Israel organizations donated to Democrats as twice at, at twice the rate of Republicans, collectively contributing twenty million dollars to Democrats and ten million dollars to Republicans, which totaled the thirty million dollars. Mm. So we see what uh, you know. We see who these people are representing. It's clear. And I'll go back to that article that I read before in the Jewish Insider. It's from November. And they were interviewing uh, uh, several uh, Jewish insiders, and some of them represent lobby groups. And it says that uh, pro-Israel Democrats see Jeffries as a reliable successor Let me read a couple of these paragraphs. It says he came to Congress as a voice of pro-Israel activism, and he serves with the same voice as he has the ability to organize coalitions across a very diverse spectrum that will support U.S.-Israeli relations. Mm. His leadership, it says his leadership, assuming that the caucuses come to agreement on his candidacy, is very positive and a heartening step in the right direction for U.S.-Israel relations. In addition to Jeffrey's uh, Jewish ties, he has also cultivated a long-time relationship with figures in the national Jewish community. Gideon Taylor, the CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council in New York, describes Jeffrey as a close friend of the Jewish community. His ties with the Jewish Community Relations Council go back since he started in electoral politics as a state assemblyman, Taylor said. When the group took him on a trip to Israel, Jeffries has been active and supportive ever since on issues relating to anti-Semitism, hate crimes, and supporting funding uh, for Israel, he added. It's a wonderful thing when you have an official like him who's a ranking Democrat, uh, and, and we aim for him to stay in leadership as a Democratic leader, becoming the fourth-ranking Democrat. Now, this was before his elevation. Mm-hmm. The Democratic They're looking to maintain him. Oh, yeah. The Democratic Party and pro-Israel camp needs someone just like Hakeem, to lead us into the future. In fact, I would say if the pro-Israel community wanted to create a democratic leader for the future, we would create Hakeem Jeffries, says Robert Wexler, a Democrat from Florida. He told the Jewish insider, Hakeem is not just interested in these issues. He's devoted to them. He's respected among the American Jewish community. He identifies with it. It says, uh, we're very lucky uh, to have him and in all likelihood getting him as a new leader of the Democrats in the House because he is uh, too great a friend of the American Jewish community and of the American Israel Alliance, says Norm Eisen, a former U.S. ambassador who served as counsel on 
of the House first impeachment of former President Donald Trump and who has known Jeffries for more than two decades. I don't see any uh, diminution of commitment and passion for uh, Israel in the new leadership, he continued. What I do see is a new generation of leaders that will be around for the next 10 or 20 years that will build uh, a caucus of commitment. (laughs) So you see that, Richard? Yeah, yeah. And this is the last published report came from the forward. And this is uh, the picture on the front of it shows uh, Chuck Schumer and Benjamin Netanyahu smiling, shaking hands. It says uh, Democratic uh, congressional leaders reiterated their commitment to a strong uh, Israel alliance over the weekend in the wake of Israel's elections that saw the rise of an extremist national party. Uh, as the leader of the Democratic Party, I have special obligation to keep the Democratic Party pro-Israel, says Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer during a legislative breakfast hosted by the Flatbush Jewish Community Coalition. I don't care who's the head of Israel's government. Hmm. The bloc led by Netanyahu won 64 seats in last week's election, giving the Alukit leaders a sixth term. Hakeem Jeffries from New York, the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, echoed the same sentiment in a radio interview on Saturday night. Jeffries, a five-term congressman uh, who succeeded Nancy Pelosi as a leader of the Democrats, uh, appeared on a panel by the FJCC. Jeffries noted that he had an opportunity on at least four occasions in personal meetings with Netanyahu. And uh, they have had had a constant relationship and hopes it continues to move forward. It's a special relationship that has anchored both of our shared democratic values as well as our shared strategic interests. Well, that, that was Jeffries saying that, along with mm-hmm. Schumer. So, you know, come on, Richard. Uh, What's wrong with this picture? Black people are cheering this as some type of cheerleaders, but this man has voiced in print and in electronic media that he's obligated and committed to someone else. Right. And he's not alone. That's the thing. He's not alone. Right. So when you're talking about this struggle for reparations, you're going to have grassroots organizations and average black people that's going to be in this fight. So we need to be prepared for it. I do like what Reverend Brown had mentioned about the, uh, the plans moving forward is to go to these people that have mean, more means than the average people. You heard it when he mentioned that, Richard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical of it, but uh, I'll let I'll, I'll, I'll... Um, but you get listen not, you, not in you, relationship to the resources they'll give, but what their um compromise or their expectations you know i I guess to to make it simple for me is that are they like the people are they like the people of who had the beach because you know when I asked about the NAACP, 
um, getting the information. You asked the question about, you know, is the, is the recommendation um, being disseminated around amongst, you know, what, to what degree is being disseminated amongst community itself and, and the feedback from it and his point of where, where, of where, you know, who it's directed to, which is the legislators, okay, to inform them. But when asked about the NAACP, how are they as an organization within these communities, how are they using this information? It was still not like they are, you know, they're not, it's not, not, it's not even if they didn't give it to them, it's not like they're going to them and say, look, I want this. So with this is what we're going to do with it. And you can see material manifestation, whether within the NAACP chapters or whatever. So when you bring these folks, you go to Divine Nine and the, the HBCUs and the entertainers um, in supporting reparations, are are they, will they be just like the people, you know, the family who um, got the beach back and then sold it back? You know, um, in the sense of for them, 20 million, the people got the beach, $20 million is a whole lot more than what they had. But as, you know, we all said, for us being outsiders, we know that that's not even, that's not even the value of the beach, $20 million. So somewhere along the way, they got shortchanged. Reverend Reverend, um, Brown was saying, when you talk about generational wealth, you know, you should have been holding on the land. And if, if that was difficult, you should have been able to come to the community and say, who supported you, this is the challenge that we're having. So I'm saying all that to say, is these people who are, you know, going to, to try to get funding, what point of view are they coming from? Are they just trying to get something so they can be able to get a little bit? When we're talking about, we talking about ownership um, and resolving as the article with the sister, the, the chairperson of the commission. Well, um, the first persons in line should be those who of the homeless. Um, you know, again, is, is, are these people from the divine? Uh, and, and I don't know these personalities or whatever organizational leaders, but what are they doing now? Not necessarily coming out of their pocket, but from a perspective of advocacy in relationship to the poor, because it's only getting worse. Mm-hmm. And he, he expressed, you know, just in California, in San, was that, was that San Francisco? San Francisco, yeah. Yeah. Um, that the, the condition that, that, that is, I mean, as far as the, 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 the amount of depopulation that has occurred, and we ain't even dealing with um, what people talk about San Francisco, and I'm not there, and I'm not sure, but they say the homeless, homeless, uh, black folks in the homeless condition is off the charts. Yeah, well, they're, so, they're, only, they're yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah, not, not only is it the population is being moved, but the ones who are maintained, they, they have no place to stay. And these people ain't saying nothing. That's, but they, but yeah, that's 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 my concern. Yeah, well, just the struggle continues, Richard, and and more and more we see that 
uh, we got to be involved in this fight one way or the other. Yeah, now, and, some, and, and some and of these people me. have adopted this, so, uh, if you can't beat them, join them attitude. We can't do nothing about it. Mm. I think yeah. Reverend Brown mentioned about, uh, you know, how people just get, the, uh, you know, how you going to just give up. You, you remember what he said? Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's you good know, to take in front it's good to take confronting these people with it because it'll be on record how they're standing. Mm-hmm. If 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 they don't get behind these issues, if they if it's non-committal, if it's no response, we'll see moving forward. And we're gonna yes. just keep these issues out front. Um, Hopefully we'll have him back on a couple of times before July comes up when the uh, final uh, uh, final assessments and reports are made. And I'm going to reach out to him also to get the system more on, which is the chair. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I would like to, to see, to be engaged with. You and, know, get, and get her um, get her thoughts and assessments as a, uh, a millennial dealing with this. Uh, before we leave tonight, uh, let me <clears throat> go over the lineup on time for an awakening. Uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. On Tuesday, it'll be the return of the Black Reality Think Tank. Uh, and picking up the baton from Dr. Rogers will be Brother Alfonso Watkins, and it'll be Tuesdays, 8 to 10, the same time slot. But they'll be debuting in uh, February, right around uh, the start of, uh, right around that first week. I'll uh, nail it down with Brother Alfonso uh, and moving forward. On Thursday, uh, Mississippi on the move, Brother Patrick Lumumba and the uh, Black Liberation Movement from 7 to 8 on Thursdays, time for an awakening from 8 to 10 on Fridays. And on Saturdays, the elders of Sankofa with host Dr. Janine James from 7 to 9 p.m. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. Driving through the country on a lazy afternoon. Time for an awakening. Or you're watching your children playing after school. Soon it will be their turns to 
Children. 